0: Well, we are continuing our uh, January series as we look at themes of hospitality. I want to invite um, my good friend Aaron Garber to come forward and join us this evening. He will be uh, preaching to us. Uh, Aaron is a uh, longtime pastor at Calvin Presbyterian Church in uh, in Irwin, and um, uh, I've known Aaron for many years as uh, a good friend. Uh, I appreciate him. He has uh, been helpful in my ministry and the ministry of our church in many ways and uh, over a uh, recent uh, meal with Aaron he was talking about some of the things he was excited about things they were talking about in their church Uh, and I I was eager to have him come and share with us. So I'm delighted that you could come tonight Aaron thanks for joining us and uh, we look eager to we're eager to hear from you. Well, good evening. Good to see you, um, Matt. And I go way back. We were roommates before um, we uh, we were married to our wives. I was the photographer in Matt and Chrissy's wedding. And then um, um, my wife Lacey and I were here at City Reform serving in some small ways in the infancy of your church. And um, so we are not here very often because we just can't be here, but we feel an incredibly close connection Uh, to you for many reasons. Well, um, I'm going to read from Revelation 3, verse 20. You'll see it here in the bulletin. Um, Hear now God's holy and inspired word. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we give our attention to your word tonight, both uh, from this passage in Revelation and many other places in Scripture, I pray that you would come and reign over us as our King, rule over our hearts, and bring us into. A very glad conformity to this word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our topic this evening is uh, feasting. Of course, the larger theme that you are exploring is hospitality. I listened online to Pastor Greg's sermon last week, and was very blessed by it, and I'm half expecting Greg to call me up and invite me over to enjoy his hospitality. It was such a good sermon, so I'll wait on that to uh, happen. And, um, and uh, the, the sermon tonight will be by means um, not so much of uh, exposition of this passage, although we'll return to it several times but uh, in many ways by biblical survey. And, uh, and uh, Matt has just given me a topic that is too, uh, too big for me and all of us tonight, so I'll do what, what I can with it. Um, in in uh, Tolkien's fictional, obviously, Lord of the Rings, uh, um, th- the hobbits were unabashed lovers of food. And you know that, even if you've never seen or read the books, you probably know that they enjoyed six meals a day. They loved their ales. Um, they experienced none of our modern angst over slimness. They did not consume food and drink um, as a means of selfish indulgence. That's that was not on their radar. If you would, if you would have spoken to them uh, of a dessert as a kind of of um, what's the phrase we use? Um, um, uh, Guilty pleasure, yes, that's it. They would have had no idea what that meant in relation to food because there was no guilt in their relationship to food. For the hobbits, food and drink, uh, they were not temptations to sinful, solitary addictions. Um, The hobbits were not gluttons or drunkards, Food and drink was, was a blessing to them. It enhanced their social lives. It heightened their enjoyment of one another's company. It brought a sense of joy as they shared it together. Uh, when, we, when we first meet Hobbit Bilbo in The Hobbit, he's rushing about finding eggs, pork, pie, apple tart, mince pie, cheese, salad, cakes, tomatoes, wine, and coffee for his surprise dwarf visitors. In The Lord of the Rings... The hobbits enjoy a feast at the Inn of Bree, and Tolkien writes, there was hot soup, cold meats, a blackberry tart, new loaves, slabs of butter, and half a ripe cheese, good plain food, as good as the Shire could show. Um, For hobbits, their moment of greatest joy typically involved meals, feasts. They received these uh, meals as a gift, a delight, from the superabundance of the creation in which they, in which they dwelt. Um, some of you might remember in The Hobbit, just before he died, the dwarf King Thorin Oakenshield said to Hobbit Bilbo Baggins If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. And the hobbits, of course, they exemplified that merriness in in all of their ways. And think about about hobbit feasting in the Lord of the Rings series and how it stands in stark contrast to the uh, gastronomic austerity of the evil creatures in Middle Earth. Gollum, well, he liked to eat, but he did not like to eat good food. The Nazgul, as far as I can tell, and some of you may actually prove me wrong because you'll know way more about this than me, but as far as I could tell, they did not eat at all. Now, if you would be kind enough to allow the comparison tonight, um, it seems to me that our Lord Jesus exemplified something of a hobbit merriness in his life. In Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus' incarnate life and mission is summarized with these words. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's it. That's his life. That's his ministry. That's how Jesus was known. The austere Pharisees accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton, while Jesus bounced happily from house to house Eating and drinking. One commentator says that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I got that from a book that I pointed uh, Matt to. Have you used that quote, Matt? Yes, you have. I didn't get a chance to talk to you about it. I I thought of this quote and I thought, I bet Matt's used that quote. So good, now you are doubly enforced with that idea and and some of these initial ideas here. Um, When he's Not feasting, Jesus is often talking about feasting. In Luke 13, Jesus promises that people will come from the east and west, north and south to recline at a table in the kingdom of God. Luke 14 then tells the parable of a great banquet. Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal sons ends with a feast. Luke 22, Jesus encourages his disciples saying, I assign to you as as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Okay, this is good. The disciples are getting a kingdom. Um, um, what are we ass- why are we assigned a kingdom? Why are we assigned a kingdom? And Jesus says, that you may eat and drink at my table. That's why you will receive this kingdom, that you might eat and drink in it. And this pattern of feasting is found not only in the life of Jesus, it is uh, it's found in the lives of all of God's people from the Old Testament through the New Testament, the Garden of Eden, aimed, of course, at communion with God. But it was a communion that entailed a kind of feasting. God's, God's, God's creative act spinning galaxies into existence, forming mountains and oceans and wild beasts and, and everything, forming everything, his creative act culminates with these words at the end of Genesis 1. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And that's how creation culminates. In other words, now that I have created all of this, now you can eat. Now you can eat. In that same account of creation, we know every day of creation is good, but it is only after God speaks of food that his creation becomes very good. In Genesis 1 31. It's as if the whole of the created order exists so that man might feast in the presence of God. And then the storyline of Scripture bears out this reality as it moves from feast to feast. Think of the central act of salvation in the Old Testament, the Exodus. And Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, thus says the Lord, Exodus 5.1, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Why did God deliver them, the central act of salvation? um, That they could have a feast in God's presence. And no surprise then, as they're liberated and they venture off toward the promised land, God establishes for his people a calendar of feasts. The feast of Passover, and the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of first fruits, and the feast of Pentecost, and the feast of trumpets, and the feast of tabernacles. The story of Israel, the identity of Israel, can be told by their, by their meals, by their feasts. We remember the picture of Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 where there it says they beheld God and they ate and drank. Then there are the prophets where one of the greatest of the prophetic hopes that is relayed through almost all of the prophets in one way or another is the promise of a feast. And Naman, Pastor Naman read from Isaiah 25 and the promise of, uh, uh, of the Lord hosting a feast of rich food on the mountain of the Lord. And and so just a side note, a, 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 a feast of rich marrow. Um, marrow, which of course is is... Uh, a product of meat um, in the great day of the Lord. So a a side note for uh, Dr. Snoke to tackle at some point, will there be animal death? He probably already has tackled it in the kingdom of heaven. And here God's people are eating meat, um, feasting on meat. And God himself, what is he feasting on? He, in that passage, is feasting on death so that we might live. It's a wonderful passage and central to the prophetic promises. And then we move to the New Testament. And and no wonder Jesus came eating and drinking because in his eating and drinking, he's bringing fulfillment to that storyline of feast after feast that runs through the Old Testament. And we know Jesus' very presence requires feasting because the bridegroom has come. In the face of Jesus, the people behold God like Moses, and they respond like Moses by eating and drinking, house to house with Jesus. Well, okay, and then Jesus, of course, um, he's crucified, he dies, he's raised again, and what does Jesus do when he's raised from the dead? Uh, It seems he just keeps on eating, one of my favorite scenes in the Bible is John 21. The resurrected Christ appears to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and the disciples had, they probably didn't know what to do with themselves, so they had gone back to fishing. And Jesus shows up on the shore, and he starts a charcoal fire. This is the resurrected Christ. starts a charcoal fire, and he Cooks fish on the fire, and you can smell the fire and the cooking fish. And the disciples had gone back to fishing, and Jesus is raised. So, what's he do? He calls them back to eating. And the resurrected Christ says to them, Come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. That he was cooking. So, Following in the steps of their Lord, what does the early church do? They organize their life and their worship around meals. Acts 2, verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And so the impression we have is there's no church without food, without feasting. And then just fast forward to the book of Revelation, which culminates, the entire Bible culminates with a meal. It's called the wedding supper of the lamb in Revelation 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And we're just, we're just scratching the surface. And oh, it's painful as a preacher to only just scratch the surface like this. And so, um, uh, but that's all we're doing. There's so many other places I want to go to. It's the hastiest of surveys, but I hope that at least with this hasty survey, you will see that feasting in Scripture is not peripheral to the storyline of the Bible, but it is central. It's central. Creation, let's eat. Salvation through the Exodus, let's eat. God the Son comes to us in the flesh. God incarnate visits Let's eat. He's raised from the dead. Come have breakfast. The church is formed. Let's eat. And in Revelation, where all things will be made new, as we just prayed and longed for um, in our music tonight, let's eat. Let's eat. And then in our passage tonight, in Revelation 3, verse 20, when Jesus comes knocking at your door, and you, you, you've felt that. You've Felt that in your life, right? And that's why you're here, because Jesus has knocked at the door of uh, your life, your heart, and what's that knocking? Who's that? What does he want with me? Is that Jesus? What does he possibly want with me? And Jesus says, open the door and let's eat. That's what he wants, to eat with you and you with him. Um, Matt invited me to preach on feasting. He didn't invite me to preach on fasting. That would be a worthwhile but a very different sermon. He didn't invite me to preach on sinful overindulgence, gluttony or drunkenness, that also would be um, worthwhile, um, but very different sermon. He asked me to preach on feasting. Um, so there, um, there's really only one point of application, I think, and it's the easiest point of application I think I've ever made. Go ahead and feast, go ahead and feast, just feast. Um, fill your tables, fill your tables. Invite your friends and neighbors. It could be simple hobbit food or something more elaborate. Um, for, for, for a moment, in this cold, dark, austere world, um, don't fret over your waistline. Don't fret over the expense. For a moment, just feast. Just feast after the pattern of Scripture. Now, I, I, I give you permission to go a little overboard And and you don't need to feel any guilt. There are no guilty pleasures in true Christian feasting. There's only good food from the abundance of God's good hand in the presence of your fellow saints and sinners in the presence of God. And and it's not that I give you permission. Um, uh, The scriptures give you permission to feast. Speaking of, with a colleague some time ago, um, and his church, his church was embroiled in a a bit of a minor controversy over spending on, on, um, showers at the church, Uh, large church, big budget, and there was a baby shower for a new mother, which entailed a meal, um, at the shower, and instead of spending the customary $100 they had budgeted, they spent, um, I don't three four hundred dollars, and um, well, you know how churches are. Um, that raised eye, eyebrows. That's three four times more than what they normally would spend. And some called for greater prudence and carefulness in spending. And um, you know, we don't we want to be careful. We don't want to waste God's money on excess, um, especially in the church. We want to be very careful. And and I said to my. My colleague, um, you, don't have a, you don't have a church budget problem with this little controversy here. You have a theological problem. Um, because the real question you're dealing with, how, mu- how much money do we spend on meals at church when we're celebrating something like a baby shower, which is an incredible gift of God, right, for a new mother? How much money do we spend? It's not a budget question. It's a theological question. And the, the question is, what is God? Like, isn't isn't that the big question of theology? What is God like? What is His heart? What does He desire? What does He love? Would God want us to throw a feast with church funds? Now think about. Well, you might answer it a little differently now, halfway through this message, than at the beginning of the message. Um, And if the feasts were for selfish motives, no, no, no. And that happens in Scripture. There's sinful feasts all throughout Scripture as well. Um, In Ezekiel 34, the leaders of the church are growing fat off of the flock that they're supposed to be feeding with the Word of God. And that is not the kind of feasting Scripture has in view. But even so, remember the question, what is God like? Is Is God stingy? Are feasts a waste of church resources? Is spending a little extra on food, good drink, contrary to the heart of God? What is God like? We have help um, in in a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 14 that um, is one of the central passages that establishes and describes tithing for God's people in the Old Testament. Um, probably, it may be the most clear teaching on tithing that we have in Scripture. And it's detailed. And, oh, this is so, you're gonna, what is God like? And, and what about our tithes, our money that goes to, to his church? Listen, listen to this, Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 22. God says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. So it's an agricultural, so your your produce. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, uh, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And and if the way is too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, so you know you can't carry your your cows um, to the, all the way to Jerusalem, which is what is ultimately in view here, um, because the Lord the place is too far from, the temple is too far from you, and again, that's in view in the future. Um, If you can't carry it, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord, your God, chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. Remember, this is their tithe money. Spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, It says, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice. It's an incredible picture. What do we do with our tithes? Deuteronomy 14 verse 23, you shall eat your tithes. Make make no mistake, tithing was for feasting in the presence of the Lord. Why do we eat our tithes? Also, verse 23 in Deuteronomy 14, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. That is, and I I don't think I've mastered what is being said here. I don't think, no, if I ever, hopefully it will master me, but eat your tithe that you may learn to fear the Lord. In this act of eating of the abundance which God himself has provided, you are learning to fear God, to recognize that he is provided and on him we depend and he is to be feared with reverent uh, joy because of his goodness. And then it says, um, you heard it, verse 26, spend the money, because so, you can't carry all this, so you got make it into money and then you go and then you buy stuff once you're there at the temple. Spend the money for whatever you desire Oxen, sheep, strong drink, wine, whatever your appetite craves. And it says, eat before the Lord your God and rejoice. Tithe money, church money. And it's gone into a giant feast, a party in which there's all this food and drink, wine, strong drink, and all of it is consumed in the presence of the Lord. It's to be received, it seems, as an experiential and lavish gift from the hand of God that points to his superabounding goodness. And in Christian feasting, God remains always at the center of the meal as the author of every good thing that is laid out on the table and as the author of every life, every person who comes to partake. God is always at the center. So back to that question, what is God like? What is God like? Well, he superabounds in goodness. That's what he's like. And, and we're called to share that goodness with one another, even elaborately at times, because our God is not stingy. Deuteronomy 14 will go on, and, and, and to this feast of the tithes, it, it, it is very clear, you, you will invite and incorporate into this feasting the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner, basically people in need, and, and God says they are to come and eat and be filled so that the feast is not an exclusive feast, it's not a selfish feast, it's a feast of hospitality and generosity, a communal feast, reaching out to others in need, bringing them in and providing for them. And again, at the very center of the meal is God himself as the source of all this delight. So you have permission not from me, but from God. I think it's more than permission. I think it's, it's a must for Christians to feast and to welcome others to your feast and to budget feasting into your church funds. You have a congregational meeting coming up. Raise your hand. Make a stink about the budget. Where's the feasting money, Pastor Matt? We love it when that kind of thing happens at congregational meetings. <laughs> budget feasting into your family funds and maybe sometimes blow the budget a little bit on feasting every once in a while as long as god is at the center of it all the feast itself becomes a picture of the superabounding goodness of the lord what is god like well if you if you know how to throw a, a truly good feast you have then drawn a culinary picture of exactly what our god is like he's the kind of god who says over and over and over again let's eat all right, our, our time is now uh, very short, I assume. Um, and we have some feasting to do ourselves in a moment at the Lord's Supper. So, uh, one final obser- observation. Um, and and uh, all of this feasting, I've just surveyed through Scripture. Notice that it takes place against the backdrop of a very dark and wicked world. It takes place against the backdrop of the wilderness, of this world. Israel in the Old Testament, constantly pressed by enemies, yet always feasting. Jesus in the New Testament, constantly pressed by enemies, always feasting. The church, think of the church here in Revelation 3, and of course Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a wild ride where Satan rages and rages and the church in Laodicea, they are, they're struggling, they're in danger, they're, they're in the process of being crushed by the world, and Jesus' words to them are, in many ways, a, a warning, and the remedy for their woes, at least in part, in the midst of the world seeking to crush them, is to open the door to Jesus and feast with him, right in the middle of this raging of Satan against them, in the Psalms where the question is asked, um, reflecting back on the Israelites, um, and they were struggling with this question, can God spread a feast in the wilderness? And he can, and he does. In all of our lives, we, we are pummeled by the wicked wilderness in which we live every day, pummeled and pummeled and pummeled and pummeled. And, and, God calls us to feast. And when we engage in feasting, Christian feasting, one of the important things we are doing in this dark, austere, wicked world is we are saying evil and death and suffering and loss and sorrow and tears will not have the final word. They won't. Feasting. Entails laughter, revelry, moments of delight and joy. New friendships are formed over the table that will last into eternity. And the deep goodness of God is celebrated over the table. Fears fade, loneliness abates, and we can eat and drink and be merry, not because everything is meaningless, but because everything is meaningful. And so our Christian feasting is our own way of raging against the dark, abysmal austerity of Satan and sin and death. Those things will not have the last word. Jesus will. And what is his final word? Come and eat. Let's eat. And let's do that as we come to the Lord's table uh, tonight. Um, Let me... Let me pray, and then I'll, I'll come down. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening, and we pray that you would um, bless us with the feast that you have prepared um, in this wilderness tonight as we uh, taste the Lord Jesus and all of his goodness and all of the life that he is to us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We, we've come to a feast tonight, and the substance of the feast is the Lord Jesus Christ, and our portions this evening will be small. Um, that's just the way it works, um, but make no mistake, this is the most elaborate feast that you can imagine, because through this feast, we are tonight raised into the heavenly banqueting halls where we will we'll feed on Christ. Um, and I want to make just one final comment from Revelation 3.20. Did you notice that in the feast, Jesus anticipates a mutuality? Jesus says, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Which means that, that when we feast at something like the Lord's Supper, it is a mutual feasting. Um, we feast and the Lord Jesus feasts. Now, we know what we feast on at this table. We feast on Christ, but what could our Lord Jesus possibly feast on? What could he feast on? Well, here, the, the old Reformed Puritan, John Owen, um, he wrote a book called Communion with God, and, and he offers commentary on these words from the book of Revelation. And in his commentary, reflecting on Jesus saying, I will eat with him and he with me, Owen says, certainly this is fellowship or I know not what is. Christ will sup with believers. Christ refreshes himself with his own graces in them by his spirit bestowed upon them. The Lord Christ is exceedingly delighted in tasting of the sweet fruits of the Spirit in the saints, in you. Fruit of the Spirit. That's what Christ feasts on when we come to this meal. Open the door to him. He eats with us and we eat with him. The fruit in our lives, the fruit that comes from his own Spirit, of course, is a garden of delight in the souls of the saints for Jesus. Here's what Owen says. He says, there is all manner of spiritual refreshments of all kinds whatever in the souls of the saints for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to this meal tonight to feast on Christ, but as we come, he finds delight in us by the working of his own spirit in us, the fruit of his spirit in our lives, so that this feast tonight is a feast of mutual delight. Jesus and his church standing against sin and death and wondering at the, at the goodness of God in it all. Well, dear friends, if you...